0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be with you. My name is Randy Bolander. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. Now, normally what we do in this segment, I tell you a little bit about what's going on. And then we do a little musical intro and you hear the teaching from the previous Sunday at the bridge. And we would do that except for the fact... That the audio that we normally pull off of the video recording was just bad. Like it was, there was just incredible hiss. And I remember listening to it, thinking, "This is unlistenable." You know what I'm saying? It's like it was just so frustrating and so uh, hard to hear. And you know what? It happens once in a while. And sometimes you just roll with it. However, I felt really strongly about this message and the content that I shared this morning. Actually, it's it's Sunday night as I record this. And uh, I'm down in my little office cave, if you need a visual, in the basement. Um, and uh, kids are watching a movie. Dogs are wandering around upstairs. I don't know what you're going to hear. But I want to reteach this uh, sitting here live because I really felt that the content was something that I want our church family to have and, and to hear. Um, you know, we are in week two of a fast, just finished the second week of the fast, and there is something about fasting together that fine-tunes our heart and brings us together. Uh, The phrase is that community is formed in common adversity. In common celebration, it's not necessarily a community, that's a crowd, that's going to a concert, that's going to a parade, but when a group of people go through uh, something that is not easy together, then they tend to form around that. And so fasting is a way to really build community as we come together and say, hey, let's do this together. However, we don't just fast to do community. We don't just do this to draw closer to one another. So before I dive in to the content from this morning, I just wanted to touch base about why we are fasting. Why, why on earth would we do this for 40 days? However you're choosing to fast, however you're observing this five reasons really that we are choosing to fast. Number one, we are believing for authority to shift principalities and powers over whole nations. Now that sounds a little grandiose for a little church that meets in a dance studio. But just hear me out. During World War II, Reese Howell led a band of intercessors, students at the Bible College of Wales. Kelsey has been there. She went to uh, be with them for their grand reopening. It had been closed for decades, and and it reopened. But this little group of people during World War II shaped history with their prayer and fasting for England. We want to be a company like that because our world needs it right now, perhaps more than ever. You say, well, what does it look like to pray and shift principalities and affect things like that. Well, three weeks ago, we had a guest, Pastor Russ, who pastors a local Ukrainian congregation. He stood before our people and he pleaded with us to pray for his family. They were still in Ukraine, hoping to make it to the Polish border. We gathered around, we prayed for them. A lot of uh, people from the bridge wanted to help him financially do that. On Thursday of this week, the last of them left poland for mexico and the first group actually made it to kansas city now are we taking credit for that no we are saying thank you jesus for that for allowing us to stand in agreement with what he was wanting to do and we're searching the scripture and the globe and saying jesus where else can we agree with you in prayer this isn't about flexing a spiritual muscle on people This is about partnering with Jesus, and I want a congregation that can shift principalities and powers over whole nations with their prayers. So that's one of the reasons we're fasting. Another reason we're fasting is because we want a heart for evangelism like maybe we have not had in the past. We're asking God to set us on fire with the message of the gospel to win many for Christ. Now, the future is ours. It really is. It's just laid out before us like a red carpet. But time is not on our side. It's certainly not on the side of many. John four thirty four. Jesus says, Do you not say, yet there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the heart fields are white for harvest. We are irresponsible to think that everyone has time. The ICU today is full of people who bet on time. We will meet people tomorrow who will be in the ICU by the end of the week. And I want the Lord to keep us up at night for the sake of the lost. That's that's something that's super important to us and we are praying for that. So we wanna pray for power to shift things in the heavenlies over nations. We wanna pray for a greater heart for evangelism. We wanna pray for a greater move of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Recently, I heard of somebody who'd been in a service where it had been preached that the power of the Holy Spirit evident in the New Testament was no longer needed because we are more mature as a church than they were. Let me just tell you that does not apply to the bridge. Okay, we are not that mature. We need those gifts and they are promised in scripture. The Bible says that every spiritual gift is given to the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. We want every gift that the Holy Spirit has for us and I I don't want to reset our standard of expectations to match our lack of experience. If we haven't experienced those gifts, I don't want to adjust what we think God can do based on what we have encountered. I want everything that he's promised us. So we pray for the shifting of things in the heavens over nations, for fasting, for a greater move of the Holy Spirit, forth for reconciliation with God and others. Jesus gave really little instruction about communion. When you think about it, very little instruction about communion. But he did talk about discerning the body of Christ and the conflict within, and this is hard. I said this morning, I just want to give you a trigger warning. Next week, I'm going to speak on reconciliation and uh, how we make things right with people in as much as it is up to us. And we're fasting about how to do that better. Finally, we are fasting specifically that the bridge would find space to grow, we need larger space and we need daily space. The space we're in now where we meet, it kind of works, but not well. And most importantly, it does not work for where this is going. And so those are the things that we are fasting for in this season. Now, as for our message this morning, title this, The Spirit at the Table, and if you're listening to this and you're a part of the Bridge family, you're just kind of feel connected at a distance. Uh, we took communion this morning and I did something that let me just encourage you to do. If you have to hit pause, do this, but I would encourage you to take communion with us at the end of the message. Stop now, hit pause, go get whatever you have, the crackers, juice, whatever you have in your house to take communion with us and hold them in your hand for me for a moment. We'll We'll wait, go get whatever you need. Okay, you're back. Did you ever grab a keepsake? Just kind of grab something because you wanted to remember something? For probably 10 years, I kept a jar of wheat on my desk. It was wheat from my dad's last wheat harvest before he passed away. And it was a symbol. And every time I saw it, I remembered him. If I would open the jar, I I could smell it. And the memories that came with that smell powerful. There were memories embedded in those kernels, more meaning that could ever be understood by somebody who did not know what that jar of wheat meant. In fact, uh, I moved it from office to office several times. And when I was moving from one office to another in different buildings, a young woman who was an assistant of mine at the time dropped the jar in the parking lot, shattered, told me later, I dropped that wheat thing you had. I'm really sorry. I just swept it all into the drain. I never did tell her what it all meant to me. I wasn't angry at her, but I really wish I'd have held on to that for myself. As you're sitting there holding the emblems of communion, I want you to see them with your eyes and hold them with your hands like I wish I would have held on to that wheat. It's a symbol, but what it represents is real. Now, as I said this morning, we're kind of making history here. I don't think in 33 years of ministry that I have ever preached on communion twice in a row. And to be honest, I don't know if it's because I have some tremendous insight, especially this week. I do find myself asking a lot of questions. And if I have questions, guess what? You get questions. Here's where my questions lie. What is happening when we celebrate communion? What can we expect And what can we open our hearts to in a greater way? I don't want to go through the motions of communion without the spiritual processes that are embedded in it. Things happen in us and around us when we take communion. And if we're not aware of what's going on in the atmosphere, let's just be honest. Communion is a strange ritual. It's not enough that receiving communion touches our heart. A good movie does that. What changes when we take communion, if we allow it, and how does it happen? Add to that question the unique twist that Jesus put on communion to institute it and then back away like Homer Simpson backing into the hedge. Luke 22, 15 and 16, he says this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this really Jesus-centric thing that we do in recognizing his death, he says, I'm not going to participate in that with you until the end of the age. I can almost hear the disciples, "What, what do you mean? You're telling us to do this and then you're not going to do it again for a while. And 2,000 years later, it still seems like an odd thing to institute and step away from. But he will join us in it one day. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. He lays out the plan for communion. But then he says, you're going to do this without me until you do it with me. We live in this age between the Last Supper and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, and yet Jesus gives us really clear instructions about what we should be doing, mostly without him. Luke 22, 17-20 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was really specific and vested in something that he was not going to do and has not done for 2,000 years, and will only do once the bride makes herself ready. Remember, Revelation 19:7. for the marriage supper of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Why has Jesus not returned? In part, because the bride is not ready. The intensity that will accompany the days leading to the return of the Lord is such that it is his graciousness to wait, even as we are made more like him. We are not prepared for the days to come. We're barely prepared for today. Have you ever thought you were prepared for something and then it happened and you realized I was not prepared for that? Like you knew things you needed to know, but you still weren't ready. My oldest son, Jackson, worked for Tesla for a while. And if you know anything about Tesla automobiles, you know this, they're they're fast. So he brought one by the house, which is what you do when your dad is a gearhead. And I drove it. Up until I drove it, I would have told you I was prepared. I knew the stats. I knew it had two motors, one in the front, one in the rear. I knew that it would hit 60 miles an hour in less than three seconds. I had the facts. But I did not have the experience And I was not prepared for what would happen when I would stomp on the accelerator. Jesus is coming back. We have the facts and we know that, but we're not prepared. So how are we being prepared? We are being prepared by the Holy Spirit. A couple of things the Holy Spirit does to prepare us. First of all, we are prepared by the Holy Spirit teaching us. Who's your favorite teacher? Think about it. Who is it? You probably have somebody that you really enjoy listening as they teach the Bible. It's always been this way. In the book of Acts, some followed Apollo, some followed Paul. I'm not going to lie. I have people who I just love to hear teach, but they're not my primary mode of accessing truth from scripture. I've got to dig for that for myself, but I don't dig alone. John 14:26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Friends, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is the best Bible teacher you will ever have. And I realize that sounds intimidating to some people. They're a little freaked out about studying the Bible and you'd rather have somebody explain it for you or break it down to you. And there is an important time for that, but never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to you about the scriptures and the will of God. When I grew up, we used to talk about hearing a still, small voice of God. Let me tell you, the still, small voice is still powerful. Listen for it when you read the word. He is a teacher. So he prepares us through teaching. He also prepares us by helping us bear fruit. There are things the Lord wants coming out of you that will not come out of you unless he is in you because we don't have it in us. It's beyond our experience, and frankly, we are not up to producing this stuff. Galatians 5, and 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of discipline, although discipline's important. It's not the fruit of Bible knowledge even, although that's important. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When those things are manifest in your life, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Randy, okay, but what's it mean to be prepared? I mean, how do we know we're not there yet? We are somewhat taught. We are somewhat fruity. Well, here's how I know that we still have a ways to go. A prepared bride, properly taught and bearing fruit, will be unified. She won't be scatterbrained. She won't suffer from multiple personality syndrome. She will not have an arm fighting against a leg, and she will be of one mind. One of my favorite preaching characters is Smith Wigglesworth, which is a great name, by the way. You know he got teased when he was a little kid, Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was born poor as a church mouse. He actually worked as a child alongside his mother on a turnip farm. Are there humbler beginnings than that? Smith gave his life to Jesus at eight years old, and as a young adult became a plumber. Then he married a woman who was a Salvation Army preacher, who taught him what no one had bothered to teach him, which was how to read. And her textbook was the Bible. That Bible was about all that Wigglesworth read for the rest of his life. In fact, American evangelist Lester Summerall went to visit Smith Wigglesworth late in Wigglesworth's life, and he arrived with a newspaper under his arm. Wigglesworth told him to leave the newspaper on the porch. It was full of lies, and he didn't want it in the house. From all that focused Bible reading, Smith Wigglesworth knew this much. Jesus was coming for a bride that was united. Wigglesworth said this, the bride of Christ will rise. The same joy, the same peace, the same hope, no division, all one in Christ. Who can make a bride like that? That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So in light of him working in our lives, knowing he is building one bride, what is the Holy Spirit doing when we receive communion? Now, if you did what I told you to do earlier, And you have your communion emblems in front of you. Hold them. Look at them. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with these emblems and with what we're about to do? I want to look at three things that he does. And then I want to encourage you to celebrate communion right where you are and give him time and space to do what he can do. As I told the church this morning, this can't be theory. It's got to be fact in our lives. So don't really consider this teaching. Consider it a lab because we're going to search the scripture and then we're going to just be naive enough to expect it to work. The Holy Spirit is inviting us into this experience. The person who responds to an invitation from the Holy Spirit can have a very different experience than the one who responds to a command. And he's asking us, will we participate? So hold your communion emblems and understand what's about to happen. Three things the Holy Spirit does when we receive communion. First of all, he convicts us of sin. You know, no one really searches for conviction any more than we search for an umbrella on what we think is a sunny day. We don't think we need it. We don't search for conviction because we don't see a problem. We don't search for an umbrella because we don't think it's going to rain. You ever been wrong about the weather? we've been wrong about our own hearts. When we take communion, Jesus directs us to take time and examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. He's not discouraging them from taking communion. He said, no, no, examine yourselves. Let's, Let's receive the cup Let's receive communion, but examine yourselves. Now, left to ourselves, most of us examine ourselves and think, all good. But the Holy Spirit examines us by a different standard. You know, there are people in your life, probably in your family, who are the designated finder. They can just find stuff that you can't find. I can't find anything. But you know, there's that one person in your house that when you lose your keys can always find your keys. And there is that one entity, that one being who can find your sin when you felt everything was fine. But because we're not good at examining ourselves, he's given us a helper. A helper who can see what we won't see and gently remind us in times of self-examination. John 16, starting in verse 8, says, And when he comes, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit here, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When you invite the Holy Spirit to examine you, you discover all kinds of things you'd never find on your own. And a fast is a great time to invite that examination. Now, this is not bad news, it's good news because there is forgiveness for the things that he uncovers. And as we take communion, we're gonna ask him to do that to examine our lives and to reveal sin in our lives. But he does more than that. Second thing he does is he moves in healing. Communion is as knit to our health as it is to our soul. This is good news, but it's also sobering news because taking communion without regard for what we are doing actually hinders healing and may bring sickness. You say, Randy, that sounds crazy. It's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now that word judgment there, it's not the judgment. It's not sending someone to hell. But it is corrective action. And that may seem a little extreme, but a corrected person is rarely in agreement with the corrective action at first. 1 Corinthians 11.30 goes on and says, That is why many of you are weak and and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, there is an aspect of receiving communion without fully examining our own hearts that can bring physical correction. I'm not saying that everyone is sick took communion at the wrong time, I am saying there is biblical precedent for people being corrected in their physical bodies for having received communion without considering their relationship with others. As Jesus is teaching on this, our physical health is as much on his mind as is our salvation. See, Randy, how do you know that? Well, when you go somewhere What do you take along? If you're going on a trip, if you're going to someone's house, what do you take with you? Well, it depends on where you intend to go and what you intend to do. You do take a side dish to Thanksgiving dinner because you're going to eat and your aunt Ethel's turkey is always dry. And so you bring those canned cranberries with the little ridges from the can to kind of serve as a counterbalance for her turkey. You do take a side dish to Thanksgiving dinner. You don't take a crossbow to a Royals game, okay? It's just a bad idea, you, even if you're not going to use it. You don't ever do that. Why? You don't need it, and you're going to get arrested. What did Jesus take to the cross? Only what he needed. Only what he intended to bear. Only what was required to do what he went there to do. When Jesus went to the cross, according to Isaiah 53, He bore our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and our physical afflictions. Say, Randy, where do you get that? Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement which brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Then, having provided for our healing, he leaves us in the hands of the Comforter and tells the Holy Spirit to have his way. Because Jesus knew that even in his own ministry, when people were healed, they were healed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts ten thirty eight. It says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. He made sure that when he went to the cross, he provided for your healing. And the healing that he provided for at the cross We're going to acknowledge here when we receive communion, it's not just for your body, it's also for your mind. There is an attack of the enemy that comes against people in uncertain times, and it's as devastating as a physical attack. And I speak of this with some measure of firsthand knowledge. It's called anxiety. There was a season I went through where I personally experienced anxiety at a level I could not have imagined. So much uncertainty was bottled up inside of me in places I was not even giving the Lord access to. The same provision for physical healing is there for the battle for our mind. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us, do not be anxious for anything. He does not give us a scripture as a command without giving us the ability to obey it and being willing to come alongside us and heal our mind. In my own story, that meant talking to some people to get perspective, but ultimately an encounter with the Lord where he showed me a large part of what was causing it, and it is like a light went on. I'm not saying everything changed any moment, but everything did change. All the good advice in the world would not have done anything were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, when we receive communion, is convicting us of sin. He's moving in healing in your body and in your mind. And finally, he's reminding us of grace. You know, there's a lot of things happen when people interact, aren't there? Especially online. The other day, I saw a clip of two dogs barking at each other and growling like they'd tear one another apart if they got to one another, but they're separated by a big fence. When the gate was swung open, they both immediately stopped and looked at each other and wagged their tails. The caption was When people argue on Facebook. Isn't it true? People say bold things online, then they see each other at Costco and smile and nod. Of all of the things that go on in personal interaction, one of the scarcest commodities in social interaction is grace. It's so scarce that even counterfeit grace looks pretty good. I made a very interesting acquaintance some years ago. was an artist named David Best. David is a a little eccentric and he builds huge, large-scale experiential art, temple-like constructions made out of wood that he buys from the manufacturers of toy dinosaur kits. You know, these little kits where you build the skeletons of the dinosaurs? Well, they stamp those bones out of balsa wood. And what is left is a very intricately cut four-by-eight sheet of balsa wood. David buys these by the truckload, and he builds massive multi-story temples as works of art. They're beautiful. He also runs a plastic line of plumbing throughout the entire structure. And when he's finished with the project, he uses that plumbing to spray a fine mist of diesel fuel and gasoline into the building. And the combination of the fuel and the balsa wood and the space between the wood ignites it. Shall we say rapidly? It almost explodes. You know, there's something cathartic about fire. People stand around a fire and they get very reflective. And as people stand in a big circle and watch David's temples burn to the ground, David walks around the circle. He's a very kind, grandfather looking guy, gray hair, piercing blue eyes. And he will walk up to people as they are staring into the fire. And he'll stand before them and he'll look them in the eyes and he'll tell them, it's not your fault. Whatever happened, it's not your fault. Often people will sob uncontrollably at the idea that perhaps what happened is not their fault, their loss, their pain, their goofed up lives. It's beautiful. It's also erroneous. Because if you and I are honest, we would admit that sometimes It's our fault. And even a kind-eyed, gray-haired grandfather figure telling us that it's not our fault doesn't change things. The Holy Spirit does not tell you it's not your fault. The Holy Spirit tells you that even if it is your fault, you're forgiven. It is a much more powerful thing to be absolved of your sins than it is to be excused for them. How do we know that he does this? because he was commissioned to do this. You have to look at a couple of different pieces of scripture to see it, but once you see it, you can't not see it. Ephesians 13 says that we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's a seal that he puts on us. Then 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The seal, the Holy Spirit, reminds us that we are the Lord's and then tells us to walk away from iniquity and towards our Father. Don't dread allowing Him to search your heart and convict you of sin. Because the same Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin ministers grace to your heart. You don't need a cheerleader You need grace. He doesn't say it's not your fault. He says, your father has forgiven you for what was your fault. Now let's move on. I want to encourage you as we close to take time and receive communion. Do business with God and allow him to move in your life in the way he was designed to do. Say, Holy Spirit, We invite you to inspect our lives. We suspend our own opinions and our perspective, and we exchange it for yours. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of sin, that you would search the deepest parts of our heart, and wherever you find something that does not align with what you say about us, that we would root it out. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in healing for those that are listening to this, that you would touch their physical bodies and their minds and that they would walk free of physical affliction and free of anxiety. And then Lord, that you would remind us all of grace, that even of those things that are our fault, we are forgiven of. When Jesus went to the cross, all of those things were taken care of. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, as people listen to this, And receive communion in their own homes. I would ask that your Holy Spirit would guide them, convict them, heal their bodies, and encourage their hearts with the grace of a loving Father. In Jesus' name, amen.